verse 25 through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of God. The men explored that country for 40 days, and then they came back to the camp. The Israelites were camped near Kadesh in the desert of Paran. The men went to Moses and Aaron and all the Israelites. They told Moses, Aaron, and all the people what they, had, what they saw and showed them the fruit from the land. The men told Moses, we went to the land where you sent us. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is some of the fruit that grows there. But the people living there are very powerful. The cities are very large and strongly defended. We even saw some Anakites there. The Anakites live in the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live near the sea and by the Jordan River. Caleb told the people near Moses to be quiet. Then Caleb said, we should go up and take that country for ourselves. We can easily take that land. But the man who had gone with him said, we cannot fight those people. They are much stronger than we are. So those men gave a report that discouraged the people. They said, The land we saw is full of strong people. They are strong enough to easily defeat anyone who goes there. We saw the giant Nephilim people there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We felt like little grasshoppers. Yes, we were like grasshoppers to them. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. I'm not going to mention any names, but some folks thought that I was pulling their legs when I announced that I would be preaching through the book of Numbers. I mean, it's just a list of Hebrew names and a bunch of census statistics. How can you preach that? they asked. The book of Numbers has a bad reputation because of its unfortunate name, but I hope you know that the name is not actually part of the book. The person who wrote the book of Numbers did not give it that title, so the name is not divinely inspired. It just happens to be the heading that some monk at some point wrote on his Latin manuscript. If the book had been called The Adventures in the Wilderness or Following the Pillar of Fire, people would have a better impression of this book and maybe more of us would read it. The book of Numbers is actually a continuation of the book of Exodus, which is well-loved. It is the story of the Israelites crossing the wilderness from Egypt to the Promised Land, and it is an adventure story. It is a coming-of-age story for the nation of Israel, and it is extremely instructive for us as Christians because it is the story of a pilgrimage, and our lives as Christians is a life of pilgrimage. This is a book about the Christian life, and it has many lessons for us. Of all the parts of the book 
of Numbers, chapters 13 and 14, are probably the most familiar and the most often preached. This week we read chapter 13, the familiar story of the 12 Israelites who spend 40 days traveling around the land of Canaan, examining the cities and the people and the crops to bring a report back to the Israelites to prepare for occupying the land. God tells Moses to send some men to explore the land of Canaan. The Israelites, there are more than a million of these people, are camped in the desert of Paran. We don't know exactly where that was, someplace in the Sinai Peninsula. Twelve men are sent, one leader from each of the tribes. They start in the south in the Negev Desert, and they travel all the way to the northern limits of the country to Lebo Hamath, which was what we would now call Lebanon. Moses' instruction to the explorers makes it sound like they are heading out for a National Geographic expedition. He writes, or he says, see what the land looks like. Learn about the people who live there. Are they strong? Are they weak? Are they few? Are they many? Learn about the land that they live in. Is it good land? Is it bad land? What kinds of towns do they live in? Do the towns have walls protecting them? Are the towns strongly defended? And learn other things about the land. Is the soil good for growing things? Or is it poor soil? And are there trees on the land? Moses' final instruction is the one that gives us the image that we all have of this expedition. I remember it from the children's Bible of my youth. He says, try bringing back some of the fruit from that land. And then in verse 23, we read that the explorers, quote, cut off a branch from a grapevine that had a bunch of grapes on it. They put the branch on a pole, and two men carried the pole between them. The idea seems to have been that the bunch of grapes was so large that it took two men to carry it. This, after all, was a land flowing with milk and honey. After 40 days of exploring, the men return to the Israelite camp, and they bring their report. Well, actually, they bring two reports. First we hear, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is some of the fruit that grows there, but the people living there are very powerful. The cities are very large and strongly defended. The first report then goes on to say we cannot fight those people. They are much stronger than we are. The land we saw is full of strong people. They are strong enough to easily defeat anyone who goes there. We saw the giant Nephilim people there. We felt like little grasshoppers. Yes, we were like little grasshoppers to them. Verse 32 tells us that this report discouraged the people, which is not surprising. I mean, who wants to feel like a grasshopper? But hold on, there's a second report. Caleb, who was one of the 12, said, we should go up and take that land for ourselves. We can easily take that land. In chapter 14, we will see that Joshua agrees with Caleb. Maybe you remember that Joshua will become Moses' successor, that he will finally be the one who leads the children of Israel into the promised land 40 years later. So here's the big question. Why should Caleb and Joshua 
come to such a different conclusion than the other men. Twelve men, each a leader within his tribe, spend 40 days exploring the land from south to north and back again. These 12 men all saw the same things. They all saw the same people, the same cities, the same landscape, the same vineyards. They all had the same facts, but they drew very different conclusions. Why? Let me say that again because it is really important. They all had the same facts, but they drew very different conclusions. Often when we argue with someone about what is the best course of a future action, about what is the thing that we should do, we think that it is the facts in the case which make us come to the conclusions that we have drawn. And we think that if we just repeat those facts to the person who disagrees with us, or if we repeat those facts loudly enough, that the light will dawn on them, they will see the error of their ways, and they will finally come to their senses and agree with us. But this, in fact, almost never works. It is true that sometimes... We might have overlooked a particular set of facts, and when those facts are pointed out to us, we change our opinion. But in most cases, where there is a disagreement, people actually agree on the facts. What they disagree about is something much deeper, something that we call values. Values are not fact statements. Values are statements about what is important to us, and different things are important to different people. The result is that the most difficult disagreements are not about facts, but they're about values. We saw this in a very big way during the COVID pandemic. Now, at first, there were many things that we didn't know. But pretty soon, we agreed on the basic facts. The disease is caused by a virus. The virus spreads the same way a cold or flu virus spreads. A certain percentage of people who contract the virus get sick. Another percentage dies. Pretty quickly, we had lots and lots of data, but we had a huge disagreement about the best policy, about the best strategy to deal with this very real problem. And that disagreement was not about the facts. It was not about the science at least not with normal people. The disagreement was about values, about what is important to us, and that's a question that science does not answer. Here were the two competing values as I see it. On the one side, we value safety. We don't want to get sick. We don't want to die. For Christians, human life is an extremely high value. Every person bears the image of God. Each one of us has an immortal soul. All of us are known by name to Almighty God. So, of course, safety and the preservation of human life must be a goal of public policy. On the other side, We also value freedom and self-determination. We want to be allowed to live our lives the way that we choose. Freedom is part of the image of God in each human. When you take away a man's freedom, you diminish or you deny his full humanity. Think of slaves. Think of 
prison inmates. God does not intend for people to be slaves or to be prisoners. So human freedom must also be a goal of public policy. But because of the particular nature of this disease, preventing illness came at the cost of restricting freedom. If you stayed at home, you were less likely to die. The hard question for people determining public policy was, how much freedom should we sacrifice for the increase in safety? And different governments and different institutions made different decisions, even though they all had the same facts. Their differing decisions were based on their differing values, safety or freedom. In China, where the value of individual freedom is extremely low, the government enacted its zero COVID policy, a policy designed to create maximum safety. Now, last December, the Chinese government finally abandoned that policy in part because of public protest, but also because of declining economic output and the number of deaths increased, which is no surprise. I certainly do not envy people who have to make these hard policy decisions. No matter what you decide, a bunch of people, roughly half of the people are going to be angry with you. But, you know, individuals also make these kinds of decisions for themselves. Early in the pandemic, one of our members said to me, I'm almost 100 years old. I don't have time to be locked up in my house. I'm going to church. For her, she made the decision to increase her risk of disease and death so that she could live her life. And thanks be to God, she's still with us today. Others were more careful and cautious, not wanting to risk sickness or death for themselves or for their families. And thanks be to God, those folks are with us also today. I remember very early in the pandemic, long before there was a vaccine, even before you could buy masks in the store, one of our people was in the hospital and I needed to visit her. It was urgent. This was not a time to call it in. And I had to make a conscious decision. Do I go to this woman's bedside and run the risk of getting this disease? Now, generally, the life of a pastor is pretty safe. But that was a time when I knew that I was risking my life. I didn't know how much by performing my pastoral duties. Man, thanks be to God, I'm still here today. Values and not facts not science, are at the bottom of the hard decisions. All 12 of the explorers who spent 40 days traveling around the land of Canaan from end to end had the same facts. They saw the bounty of the land. They saw the walled cities. They saw the giants. And 10 of the 12 thought that the wiser course was to stay safe, to not enter the land. At the same time, two of the 12 thought the right thing to do was to move forward in spite of the increased risk of death. And just to be clear, plenty of Israelites died when they did finally enter the promised land. Now, if the Israelites had been Presbyterians, they would not have entered the promised land they would still be in the wilderness. 
And that's because in a Presbyterian church, we are ruled by the majority. Each congregation is governed by a board of elders elected by the members, and that board of elders, which we call a session, discusses the decisions that the church needs to make, and then they take a vote, and the majority rules. And that works pretty well. But let's be clear. Israel is not a democracy. It is a theocracy. The kingdom of God is a theocracy. They have a king. We have a king. That king is almighty God. And our king rules by edict. God simply gives the law. In the kingdom of God, there is no debate on the Ten Commandments. There is no vote taken on our articles of faith. When God gives his law, God does not ask our opinion. And yet how many people in this world think that they have a right to veto God's law? You know, some of the things that God says I really like, but when he says this over here, Personally, I could never believe in a God who, to which God says, who asked you? Since we are not the ones who created the universe, we do not have a say on the laws regulating human sexuality, for example, any more than we have on the law regulating gravity. God did not consult us, nor will he, ever. We do not have a vote or a veto when it comes to the divine law. God is sovereign. He does not answer to us. But the fact that we have no input on God's law does not mean that we're unfree or that God is a tyrant. It does not mean that we have no choice when it comes to God's law. We have a choice. The choice is simple. Will I be with God or will I be separate from God? Will I be part of what God is doing or will I not be part of what God is doing? When God gave his law at Mount Sinai, the choice was clear. Follow the law and you will be God's people. And if you don't follow the law, you're just cut off. The same principle holds true in New Testament times. The Apostle Paul writes, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Friends, we can always go back to Egypt. God will not force us to enter the promised land. We do have a choice. God does not want robots. God wants relationships with real people, with free people. God wants us to freely choose to follow him. God wants us to freely choose to obey him. God wants us to freely choose to love him. God wants us to freely choose to trust him. And God has promised rich blessings if we do. But if we don't, well, don't think that God's going to stop from doing what God planned on doing. Now, I've met some Christians who think that they have God over a barrel. You know, if I didn't do the things that I do, 
in this church, well, God would just be out of luck. The kingdom of God would come grinding to a halt. It's silly, of course. God said that he would crush the head of Satan. God said that he would redeem a people for himself. God said that he would create a new heaven and a new earth. God said that he would prepare a place for us so that we could be with him. He invites us to be a part of what he's doing. But if we don't want to do it, he'll just find someone else to do it. For the past 60 years, mainline Protestants have been crying into their gin and tonics about the decline in their once great and powerful institutions. Some of you might remember when the PCUSA was created in 1983 by a merger of the northern and southern branches of the church. Believe it or not, I was working in the headquarters of the PCUSA when it was still in a building called the God Box in New York City during the time of the reunion when the church was selecting a new city for its home. Since 1983, the PCUSA has declined by two-thirds. Think about that. That once grand institution is now one-third the size that it was 40 years ago. Meanwhile, the population of the United States has grown 44% during the same period. As a percentage of the total U.S. population, the grand old PCUSA has shrunk 75% since reunion. But here's the reassuring truth. The Church of Jesus Christ is as great and as powerful as ever. God's kingdom is as great and as powerful as ever. While the mainline church chose to detach itself from what God is doing by disconnecting itself from the plain sense of the Bible, God has continued to raise up a church to be about the business of the kingdom of God. When God intends to do something, it gets done. Now, unfortunately, it seems like 10 of the 12 Israelite leaders failed to understand that basic truth. Let's go back to the beginning of chapter 13. You have it there in your bullets. Open that up and take a look and see what the Word of God says. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan. I will give this land to the Israelites. Send one leader from each of the 12 tribes. So Moses obeyed the Lord's command. The charge that was given to the 12 leaders, one from each tribe, is to explore the land of Canaan. Notice what God's charge does not say. It does not say Send some men to explore the land of Canaan and bring back a recommendation regarding whether or not the Israelites should occupy the land. Now that's the kind of charge the session gives to an ad hoc committee. Study the problem and bring back a recommendation. We do that all of the time in the Presbyterian church. But in this case, God has already determined what the Israelites are going to do because he has determined what he will do. I will give this land to the Israelites. Do you see that? 
the opinion of Shemua and Shaphat and Egal and Palti and Gadiel and Gadi and Amiel and Sether and Nabi and Geuel, their opinion doesn't matter. In fact, the opinion of Caleb and Joshua doesn't matter. What matters is what God said, what God determined, and what God said is, I will give this land to the Israelites. At that point, the Israelites have a choice. God may be king, but the Israelites have a choice. Will they be part of what God is going to do? Or will God have to do it with someone else? Will they remain God's chosen people? You may already know what happens in this story. We'll talk about it more next week as we look at chapter 14. But because the people of Israel decided to follow the fears created in their heart by the 12 explorers who felt like grasshoppers in the sight of giants, because the people of Israel who had seen God's miracle in bringing them out of Egypt were afraid to move forward from the wilderness, God determines that they're all just going to die in the wilderness. None of them, except for Joshua and Caleb, enter the promised land. Now, maybe that sounds harsh to some of you, you know, that mean old Hebrew God. But actually, God gave these people exactly what they wanted. They were afraid. They didn't want to move forward. So he let them stay put. They were discouraged by the reports of what lay ahead. So he let them sit right where they were. Maybe some of them went back to Egypt, we don't know, but what we do know is, is that those who were afraid to press into the promised land were not forced to go there. They made a choice, and God honored their choice. By the way, I believe that every single person who wants to be with God that they one day will be with God and be with him for all eternity. I firmly believe that God does not turn anyone away. But I also believe that every single person who does not want to be with God, that God will honor that choice too. God won't force anyone against their will to be with him. Pagans and atheists can choose to be separated from God for all eternity. We can choose to not enter the promised land. Now, there are some grand theological truths in this story. The pilgrimage that began in bondage in Egypt and is bound for the promised land has lessons for us about our eternal destiny, about salvation. The promised land, of course, is a foreshadowing of our eternal home, New Jerusalem. But the story of the Israelites on the cusp of the great decision of whether or not to trust God and enter the land of giants also has a lot to say about our life on earth and about our life during this Christian pilgrimage. As individual Christians, we are daily being invited by God to enter in to the future that he has in mind for his people. And many times... 
It is fear of the future, fear of the unknown, fear of change, fear of the risks that lie ahead, fear of the giants that prevent us from receiving and enjoying the blessings that God wants to give us. Too many of us are too afraid, and we are missing out on what God has in store for us. When the time came for Joshua finally to lead the children of Israel into the promised land, God said to him, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. How many of us believe that? Or maybe more importantly, how many of us live as though we believe that? I'm afraid there are a lot of us who believe that up here, but we don't believe it in our guts. When the ten explorers brought their report of the giants and the walled cities, the Bible tells us that it discouraged the people. Too many Christians are discouraged. And as long as we are discouraged, as long as we're tied up with fear, we cannot, we will not receive what God has in store for us. Maybe you remember that when Jesus was getting ready to leave his disciples, he said to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. And how does it make sense for us to not be troubled or to not be afraid? After all, these are troubled times. We are facing challenges and uncertainties all around us. The disciples would face unbelievable persecution. How is it that we cannot be afraid? Or how can we not be afraid? Because Jesus also said, I am with you always to the end of the age. You know, any time we do something new, there's a certain amount of fear. Even if we're unhappy or discontent in our present circumstance, even if we are suffering real misery, making a change can cause us to be afraid because even if our present situation is uncomfortable, at least we understand it. At least we know how to do it this way. But some new way? Who knows what might go wrong? What's the old saying? Better the devil you know than the devil you don't know? That's not in the Bible, by the way. But the idea is that it's better to stick with what you know, even if it's not so great, than risk something new and something different. I need to tell you that I have had the privilege as your pastor, to walk with you and to witness some amazing breakthroughs in your lives. Now, the pattern is often the same. There is some discomfort, something doesn't feel right, something doesn't fit right, like the shoes that are too tight and hurt your feet, but you feel stuck, and you come to me and you tell me you only have one pair of shoes and you don't know what to do. What to do. Maybe it's a relationship in your family. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's where you're living. Maybe it's your health. And you come to me and say, Pastor, this really hurts. I'm really suffering. I need some relief. Would you pray for me? And usually... The prayer that people expect is something like this. Dear Jesus, 
please make these shoes stop hurting my brother's feet. His feet have grown, he has the gout, but please make these shoes magically stop pinching his toes. I pray a lot of prayers like that. But after about the third time, after the third time a person comes to me and says that they just don't have enough money to meet their expenses that they just can't endure their boss anymore, that they are still having conflict with their teenagers, that their wife is cold and distant, that they can't manage the house that they're living in. After about the third time, then it's time to change what we're praying for. If the shoes continue to pinch, it might be time to change the shoes. Oh, but pastor, these are the shoes I have always worn. These are the only shoes I have room for in my closet. I don't know where to find a new shoe store, and I already have the shoe polish for these shoes. People in misery often tell me the 101 reasons why they must remain miserable. And the reason is always the same. Fear. Fear. Fear and fear. This is the common pattern. I've seen it in many, many times. I've seen it many, many times in my 18 years as your pastor. I could write a book about this phenomenon. I would title it, I'm miserable, Lord, but please don't make me change. On the other hand, I have witnessed people who've made huge breakthroughs. I've seen people face their fears. I've seen people overcome the fear of doing something new and in a different way, their fear of change. Those fears are real. I don't want to diminish that. I have witnessed, however, people face their fears and step into a new pair of shoes and into a new reality. And you know what happens with them? They say to themselves, why did I wait so long? By the way, I'm talking about some of you in this room this morning. Some of you who faced your fears and made changes and your lives are better now than they used to be, thanks be to God. It has been a great privilege for me to walk with you on that kind of journey. That's part of what the church does for us, by the way. It walks with us through the changes of life. We don't have to do this alone. I've faced this a number of times in my own life. I think about my real fear of entering into ministry. I was 40 years old at the time. I was established in my career. How do I quit my job and step into an unknown future? How do I uproot my family and make them live in some tiny apartment while I'm at seminary? How do we live on half the income that we were accustomed to? Well, other people walked with me. My wife, above all, I couldn't have done it without her support, but also the church, my sending church, churches that I worked for during my seminary years. Last month, my final, final draft of my dissertation was approved, and on the acknowledgement page, I mentioned the name of Dr. Margie Henley. She was my dissertation coach, and I couldn't have done it without her. I was overwhelmed. By the scale of the project, I was afraid to start writing, but she walked with me, 
offering me encouragement and accountability that I needed to face those fears. That's what the church does for us. That's why we need each other. So here's my encouragement to you. In Jeremiah 29.11, God says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And because those plans always are for something new, something fresh, those plans will bring to us a certain amount of fear and foreboding. We will be walking into new territory. We will be doing new things. We will be surrounded by new people. We will face new challenges. There will be new giants. But God goes before us. And God prepares the way. And God surrounds us with an army of angels. And while there might be giants, God wins every battle. And brothers and sisters, when we go with God, his victory becomes our victory. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, would you uh, seal to our hearts the truths of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.